1 Samuel chapter 13. It's just where we happen to be. I don't know why I talk like I'm from Joyce or something. I'm not. I don't know. It just happens. Beginning in verse 1. Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash. And in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah of Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his tent. Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines and all Israel that had become odious to the Philistines. The people were then summoned to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and they camped in Michmash, east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, then the people hid themselves in caves and in thickets and in cliffs and in cellars and in pits. And also some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul... He was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. We are working our way through the book of 1 Samuel. As we resume in chapter 13, it's the beginning of the decline of Saul's reign as the very first king of God's people. And just to remind or inform any who haven't been here in a while, Saul's coronation as that first king of God's people is a low light, not a highlight in the history of God's people. Saul's rise to the throne is not the fulfillment of some long-standing prophecy given to encourage God's people, but in fact, it is the opposite. Saul becoming king is the result of, if I can use this, a, a bit of a, a inadequate but I think illustrative example It's the result of a loving father sort of throwing up his hands, exasperated by the know-it-all attitudes of his adolescent children, demanding their rights. And if you're a parent, you know that there are times when the preferred course of action is to give little Johnny or little Susie what they want in hopes of them learning a lesson in a somewhat controlled environment rather than them having to learn a much harder lesson later on when they are out from under that parental oversight. Saul as king has never really even gotten started, and yet his reign is already on a downward slide. But what should be obvious to us as we proceed is that Saul is and will be a stepping stone, a God-ordained, a God-allowed-placed stepping stone to the fulfillment of the promise of another earthly king handpicked by God. And so you see, God has always been very involved in politics. Even Esther's rise to power was God-ordained, God-designed. And while the next king would himself, even though hand-selected by God, be a very flawed individual, he is going to serve as an emblem and a portent of the promised king of kings. 
Now, when you are in your reading through the Bible, which we encourage here as a discipline and hopefully as a joy, and you come to 1 Samuel, a main takeaway is that Saul was not God's chosen man for the hour. That's clear in the preceding chapters that we've been through over the weeks. But rather, Saul was a disciplinary concession, albeit under the oversight of God's sovereign will, or what is sometimes called his permissive will. And now I just want to mention something. I don't want to get off on this because, for one thing, it's exceedingly boring. But depending on what particular version of the Bible you are reading, you may come across some confusing notation right out of the gate in verse 1. Because depending on your translation, yours may say something very different from what I read this morning and what you saw up on the screen from the New American Standard Bible. In fact, some of your translations actually may leave part of verse 1 blank concerning the whole uh, time or the question of how old Saul was and how long that he happened to reign as king. There may be a footnote, there may be some words in italics, or it may be completely blank. The fact is that the extant manuscripts, that's with an A, not an E, extant manuscripts, meaning the surviving oldest manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament, have the dates obscured, either by where, more than likely, or by intentional ambiguity. I don't have a great answer for this, but I do have an answer. And I tell you, in all sincerity, the answer that I'm going to give you, you can dismiss out of hand if you like. Given, though, our doctrine of inspiration, according to Second Timothy, that all Scripture is inspired by God, that it's God-breathed, that it was superintended so that nothing was put there that shouldn't be there, nothing was omitted that should be there, a reasonable by-faith declaration or conclusion is that what we have is precisely what God ordained us to have, uncertainties and all. So let me make just two suggestions about this. This is the part that you can dismiss. Number one is the absence, at least in this point in time, and I mean in April of 2018, the absence of there being clarity there about the numerical symbols change nothing in the rest of all the scriptures. There is no doctrine, there is no ideology, there is no character value, there is no command of God, no nothing, there is nothing that is in any way, shape, or form diminished, compre- uh, contradicted, or any other ways lessened by the absence of those numerical symbols. In other words, nothing hangs on the lack of not having the specific numbers here, as well as this occurs in a few other passages in the Old Testament as well. But also it may be that down the historical road, meaning yet in our future, down the road of of archaeological and biblical discovery, new evidence could very well be found that will fill in those kinds of blanks. And I just give you one very quick 
uh, example of this. For many years, the critical minds, uh, biblical criticism and, uh, and, and the diminishing of the inspired nature of God's word is nothing new. It's been there almost from the, actually from the beginning. The Hittites, which is an entire civilization which is mentioned at least 35 times in the Old Testament, there's never been any kind of outside, meaning archaeological, objective to the world, scientific evidence that the Hittites even existed. And so the way the criticism goes, or at least went, and you'll see why, went is that for for being such a, a profoundly large and influential civilization, if they were real, we would certainly have evidence of that by now. And that continued on through centuries. But down that historical road of discovery in 1902, an archaeological dig di- discovered, I think, 10,000, not one, but 10,000 ostracan, which are, are uh, basically pieces of clay pottery and or pieces of clay that were just inscribed. And lo and behold, with clarity, by name, there you have the Hittites. And so when I say that at least at this point in time, it remains an ambiguity, it may not, but again, if it does forever, it really makes no difference. The suggestion number two is, It may very well be an intentional omission under the sovereign editorial hand of God meant to be an historical insult to the king, that is to King Saul, and even more so to the people who demanded him. And what I mean by that is that it is not an unusual method in Scripture very easily demonstrated, where God intentionally omits the name or the names of certain unsavory individuals as if to say, and they're only referred to as he or as them or as they, and never mentioned by name as if to say, you are a non-entity to me. And it's quite intentional. Now, as I said, you can take that, you can leave it. Please don't stock much of anything on that. It is in for what it's worth category. Without introduction in the text that I read, all of a sudden Jonathan, a name that is one of the well more weller known, one of the better known names of the scriptures is mentioned for the first time. And apparently he's one of his father's commanders, that is Saul. And so Jonathan goes out and takes on the Philistines and he routes them, which gets the attention of the broader reach of the Philistine people. And so the Philistines get all hot and bothered and understandably, and they're planning their own counterattack now at Gilgal, which freaks, of course, everybody out, including the big, tall, handsome King Saul. And I say that because if you've been with us through this study, there are numerous times when it's mentioned how big and tall and handsome Saul was, and that is why the people put him in office, because he looked so good as a king. And they were psyched that somebody looking so great and so awesome and so kingly would be the one to lead them. And in those horrific words, God says, give them what they want, Samuel, the high priest. Give them what they want. And that wasn't a good thing. Verse 8. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel. That is, Saul waited seven days until the appointed time set by Samuel, who's the high priest and the prophet, But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from Saul. 
So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, uh, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. And therefore I said, now the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal and I've not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. I love it. Oh, it was against my better judgment, but I made myself do it and offered the burnt offering. Saul needed desperately the counsel of God. Saul needed God's guidance. Saul needed God's direction for what to do in light of the present situation, which, as he's describing here, Samuel, the, the, the word is describing, was degrading before his eyes. His people, who were so psyched about him being king, are departing and abandoning and running away. The people's choice... We're losing confidence in the king they selected to lead them in battle. So Saul is desperate for the counsel of God. Adversity changes one's convictions. Remember the scene? Very, very popular movie around Christmas time. It's a wonderful life. Right? And Jimmy Stewart, you know, the actor, he's in dire straits and all that's going on with the missing money because of his knuckle-headed Uncle Billy and all of that. And everything's crashing down around him. And there he is, and he goes to, uh, I can't think of the name now of the guy, but his his little tavern. And he's there at the counter, and he's in angst, and, and he says something like, I'm not much of a praying man. But all of a sudden, he's praying. Because he's desperate. You think about our nation after 9-11. You remember that? And how both sides of the aisle and independents all gathered on the steps for what? To pray. And I would bet the farm that... If there were atheists on the Southwest Airlines jet this past week whose engine exploded and punctured the fuselage of the aircraft, that if there were any atheists on there, I'd be willing to bet that they were praying to the God that doesn't exist. (laughs) As C.S. Lewis once wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. King Saul is watching his people run for their lives, for they were in the seventh day of waiting, waiting for their hotline to God, that would be the high priest Samuel, to show up, because he said he'd be back in seven days to do the priestly things, and he wasn't. And King Saul is desperate, did I say he's desperate? And he takes matters into his own hand, and this is where, if we were doing a movie here, we'd have the plaintiff whale notes of the cello enter in here. A very inexpensive cello, I might add. I was going to omit that, thinking maybe I don't have room for it, but we all know there's always room for cello. Oh! 
This is how you spice up the Old Testament. When the, sorry about that, but not really. When the Lord has been clear about something through his word and prayer and outside counsel, halt yourself from doing something out of desperation, which is contrary to the expressed will of God. Samuel being the high priest was the only acceptable means through which God's express will would be revealed to Saul. This is why Samuel had explicitly told Saul to wait for him to return, which was going to be in seven days. But being fixed on the moment, on the circumstances that were degrading by the moment, he was panicking. And candidly, who wouldn't? Well, for one, I guess you could argue argue that a greater man of faith might not. And after all, if you are the king of God's people, you need to be a man of great faith. You need to be a man after God's own heart. What Saul needed could only come via Samuel. But he figured that he would take it upon himself to make the offering and hope for the best. For Saul's part, it was showing decisive action. That's what leaders do. Maybe those scattering would, would see him taking action and say, Ha, oh, look, a leader. But Saul needed more than just decisive action. He needed the infallible wisdom of God Almighty. And that, again, would only come from Samuel, the high priest and prophet of God. And King Saul's guilt is advertised all over his conduct, and so he responds very defensively. Hold your holy horses here, my priestly pal. First of all, Mr. Mister, let's review the surrounding facts of the situation. Number one, the people were getting freaked out because of your lack of punctuality. They were scattering like rats in a fire. I had to do something. They needed to see their king as a decisive king and as a man of confirming action. You're late. You said you'd be here in seven days, and it's the seventh day, buddy boy. This is your fault. Philistines are preparing for action at Gilgal, and we needed God's favor. So I had the offering ordered. I had to do it. Oh, I didn't want to, but I had to. And Samuel interrupts. Whoa. What was that? You say, come back again. What would you say in number two? What was number two? What was the problem? Saul says, I said, you were late. You said you'd be here in seven days, and it's the seventh day. Samuel says, exactly, it's the seventh day. So who's late, Mr. Kingly King? Hey, this is my imagination, okay? You have your own. Until that sundial of yours goes past midnight. Yeah, I don't know how that would work. It's still the seventh day, and here I am. I'm right on time. And Samuel says, again, what have you done? There's no repentance. There is only justification. 
verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself. What kind of a king? A man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, for many years, I was led to believe that the big sin here, actually the only sin here, was the fact of the king offering up the offerings, which was reserved for the priests. Uh-uh. Because, you see, we find King David doing that. We find Solomon doing that. And there's not even a mention, not a peep, not a squawk, nothing about them doing that. The flagrant crime here was that he disregarded the command of God, which came via Samuel to wait until Samuel comes and brings you the word from me. That was the crime. You've acted foolishly. Now, that sounds really minimal by that translation. But the Hebrew, the naval, which is translated fool, is the same word that is used in the Psalms, in Psalm 14, Psalm 53, I believe, that says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Saul's offense might seem minor. But look at other consequences of what seems to be pretty minor infractions of the Scripture where God has issued clear directives. Think about Nadab and Abihu. The sons of Aaron committed a capital crime. By doing what? By offering up what's called unholy fire. They violated the terms of how proper offerings would be brought and God personally took them. Think about Uzzah. Even doing a good deed. When the oxen stumbled carrying the Ark of the Covenant, he thought the Ark was going to fall off and it would be defiled when it hit the ground. And so he put his hand up and stabilized it from falling. You do not touch the Holy Ark of the Covenant. And God took his life right there, another capital crime. Boy, wow. And there's Moses striking the rock. When God said, Moses, speak to the rock and water will come out. Oh, but he was furious at the knuckleheads he had to lead. And he whaps the rock. And that minor infraction cost him the glorious privilege and pleasure of ushering personally God's people into the promised land. Saul is informed that his kingdom is in the process of being taken away. Now, historically, it would take 20 years. But there would be no familial succession, meaning the normal root of things, as we've talked about in the past, is that his son would be king and his son would be, and so forth. Nope, that's all gone. And there is no legacy, no dynasty. 
Rather, the Lord would crown a new king who was neither tall nor handsome like Saul, but rather was a man after God's own heart. Enter the shepherd boy, David. Samuel was a man after Israel's heart. Those who demanded him were all about the look. They were all about the image, the prestige. Well, well, I'm I'm voting for someone because they're oh he's just such a handsome man he'd make he'd just be such a good looking president, really. We've talked about that in the past too. That was all going to change when God gives them their next king, whom God selects rather than the people. Now, it's easy when we're in the Old Testament to react in one of two ways, actually a lot more ways, but I'll just say one of two ways to the things that I've mentioned there this morning. One is to just be dismissive. You know what? It's the Old Testament. Come on. We're Christians. We live in an age of grace. You know, we're New Testament and all of that. The Old Testament, it re, the presumption is it really, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. It really doesn't pertain to us. But God is immutable. That means he doesn't change. His character doesn't change. So the foundational principles of God's character, which when violated give rise to his anger, those don't change in the New Testament as far as what angers a holy sin-hating God. Another way to respond when we're in the Old Testament as Christians is to become a bit paranoid. Start, start becoming very legalistic. Walking in habitual failure, believing that feeling bad about our sins is payment enough. That's atonement enough. Well, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'll do it and I'll feel bad about it. And that makes it okay. So this isn't misunderstood. Let me try and say this a little different way. We don't have to worry about violating some liturgical aspect of worship. We have been liberated from the law as it was spelled out in Judaism. We've been liberated from the strictures of the rites of worship in the Old Testament. But we do need to concern ourselves with violating the clear principles of God's holiness, which, again, emanate from His character. Which is precisely why this certainly is not comprehensive. It is why a Christ-following couple cannot shack up as if it doesn't matter to God because our sins are covered by the blood no matter how acceptable it may seem to culture. God still gets angry about such things, even in the age of grace. Now, the way that's dealt with is entirely different for sure. We cannot kill our children because they were not planned or they were not the right sex or whatever the reasons are. We cannot presume to change our gender simply because a very evil and perverse generation affirms it, even encourages it. And God is clear that while God is love, no one has the right to love outside the bounds God has clearly established through his inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative words to us. 
being dismissive and being paranoid of the Old Testament revelation are both caricatures. And both are guaranteed to catapult anybody into the valley of despair or depression. So yes, true believers living in this age of grace, yes, all our sins, past, present, and future, have been washed away, covered by the blood of the Lamb. We've been clothed with the garments of salvation, Isaiah 61. He's given us his raiments of perfection. All of that is true. But that does not mean that God's character is somehow changed. And it's like, oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. You're in Christ. Yes, you are. And because we are in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit residing within us, that Holy Spirit doesn't go, oh, that's so cute. (laughs) I mean, you can't be blamed, really. I mean, look what's going on in your culture around you. I mean, you're getting fed this junk from, from elementary school on up and everything you choose to watch on TV, not everything, a lot of things you choose to watch on TV and you fill yourselves and your songs and the music and the culture of the day. I understand. Don't worry about it. They're covered by the blood. Well, they are if you're a true believer. And candidly, if you're a true believer, you cannot embrace sin so flagrantly, habitually, and unendingly. Hebrews 10 is very clear about that. For if we continue to sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, the writer of Hebrews says, there remains the fearful prospect of judgment. God is in control. He always has been. He always will be. But we happen to be blessed with living in a representative republic where we vote in people to represent our views and our values. And God help us when we do not choose individuals who reflect his heart and mind for the price, as we know already, is steep. Let's remember, God has always been involved in politics, and he always will be. (laughs) Let me have you stand. Lord in heaven, thank you for being in control. And Father, since I am before you, before even my brothers and sisters, you know that I do not walk in the, in the walk of faith concerning what I just said in a very real way, believing that you are in control. And it's not, Lord, here I am, I'm going to justify myself. It's not that I don't believe it, oh God. It's just that it's hard to know how and when and where we are to interject 
ourselves and in what ways. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us. As the days get darker and the culture becomes more wayward, that yes, you would have mercy on us, but open our eyes and our hearts and take the blinders off and the stoppers in our ears to hear your spirit, to be men and women and boys and girls after your own heart. For the glory and praise of your name, amen.